Some days when I see that disaster staring back, I get so mad that I pound my gut with my fists as if I could beat the fat out of me. Other times the sight sinks me into a blue fog that can ruin an hour or a morning or a day. But most of the time what I feel is sadness over how much life I've wasted. When I was a kid, I never climbed a tree or learned to swim. When I was in my 20s, I never took a girl home from a bar. Now I'm 50 and I've never hiked a mountain or ridden a skateboard or done a cartwheel. I've missed out on so many adventures, so many good times because I was too fat to try. Sometimes when I could have tried anyway, I didn't have the guts. I've done a lot of things I'm proud of, but I've never believed I could do anything truly great because I've failed so many times at the one crucial challenge in my life. What the hell is wrong with me? That's the voice of Tommy Tomlinson, the author of The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. And this is the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. Today's guest, Tommy Tomlinson, is a writer who spent 23 years as a reporter and a local columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where he was a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize in Commentary. Tommy is also the host of the podcast Southbound for WFAE, which is the NPR station in Charlotte. His outstanding long-form writing has been published in Esquire, Sports Illustrated, ESPN the Magazine, and many other places. He also happens to be a former colleague and a good friend. Tommy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Don. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so thrilled you're here, and congratulations on the new book. I'm absolutely thrilled you've pulled this off. It's an amazing accomplishment. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. At 10 o'clock last Wednesday night, Tommy, your new book, The Elephant in the Room, was excerpted by The Atlantic. Your piece, entitled The Weight I Carry, which will be featured prominently uh, in this Sunday's Sunday Long Read newsletter, went viral almost instantly. I saw nonstop and well-deserved praise for it all day Thursday on Twitter, and it, that, that praise and those kudos bled into Friday as well. Since the excerpt, like the book, is so deeply personal, what was that first rush of reaction like for you? First of all, it was tremendously gratifying to know that people were finding the, the piece and reacting to it and that I was reaching them, you know, moving them emotionally in some way. And so at first it's sort of like the slot machine. You just watch all the Twitter notifications sort of roll <laughs> by and it's it's like this great endorphin rush, right? Yeah. But then after that, um, especially as I started checking my email, because people went and found my contact information and things like that and, and, and sent me, started sending me these long incredibly emotional, incredibly powerful and personal emails about their struggles with weight and their um, lifelong uh, bafflement and not being able to get over this hump in their life or from people who care for those people and love them and were writing me to say that maybe they understood their spouse or brother or sister or somebody like that a little better now because of what I wrote. And those things were just tremendously moving. And, you know, I'm still getting some of those today. Just um, incredibly emotionally powerful to me because it feels like I hit a vein with some people. 
And that's what I set out to do with the book. Was the reaction sort of how you imagined it when you first signed the book contract a few years no, ago? No, I, I wasn't. I, I, I refused to try to imagine what would happen. You know, when I, this is my first book. You've had more experience with this than me, but I've done a lot of big stories. And the thing you dread when something like that lands is silence. You know, that, that nobody's, so yes. nobody's going to read it. Nobody's going to care enough to comment, even if they hate it. Nobody's going to hate it enough to say anything about it. And so um, that first rush came in and I was like, well, okay, that's great. People are finding it and it's meaningful enough for them to speak up about and share with other people. And then to for people to to share with me their stories about it, well, yeah, I mean, that's the ideal for me and what I had always, you know, secretly hoped for was that it would reach enough people in such a deep way that I would be sort of flooded with these responses. And it is in some way overwhelming. I, I There's no way I apologize, by the way, to all the people who reached out to us in the last few days. There's no way I can get back to everybody right away. But I, I have read and heard every bit of it. And I'm, I'm just immensely grateful for how this story seems to have reached people. Well, and the story is just so deeply personal, obviously, Tommy. And one of the things I'm really curious about is how hard was it to declare your starting weight, which was 460 pounds on New Year's Eve 2014 to the world? No one knew that number, as you say uh, in, in the book, including your wife. Um, how hard was it to do that in writing that and knowing this was going to go so public? It was like this, it, I guess it's sort of like a cliche, but pulling the Band-Aid off the scab, but this was like a big, giant, you know, you know, um, industrial strength Band-Aid. Uh, that was, that number, you know, anybody who knows me, anybody who's seen me knows I'm a big guy, knows I'm overweight. But somehow that number sets it in concrete in a way that um, was really difficult for me to share with other people. As you said, I didn't tell anybody that number, my wife, my friends, nobody. And so just to write, I, I started the book really, um, I, I started writing the book by just writing those four words. I weigh 460 pounds. And I just sort of stared at that and had to take a couple of deep breaths and take that in and realized that was part of what I was going to put out there in this book. And that was only the beginning, you know, the details of what that means for me and what it means with my relationships to other people in my own life and my life expectancy and all those sorts of things, um, you know, uh, were all difficult. In some ways, though, that was the hardest part, just to write those four words. So that number... Uh, yeah. And, and, it, and it, it really, it starts as a confessional and really to do a confessional and to be really honest with yourself and with everybody else, you've got to put that number down. And was there ever a moment, Tommy, early on in the writing of the book after you first wrote it and took those two deep breaths or, or even later in the writing process where you thought to yourself, well, wait a minute, I can always go back and I can edit that number or I can change the number, or I don't have to necessarily say what that number is. Did you have any doubts uh, about the confessional aspect, just of that number, uh, as opposed to all the other details that followed? 
I didn't about that part. There were other parts that, you know, I thought about carefully, especially talking to my wife, because there were things about our relationship that I put in the book that, you know, we also had not told other people. But the number felt important to me to share from the beginning, because first, it's something that people are obviously going to ask. Um, that's the first when you when you a fat guy is going to confess something. Well, what's the first thing you should confess? Okay, here's how much I weigh. Um, but beyond that, uh, I felt like that was the jumping off point for me to get into all the other stuff. And that if I think people in any sort of memoir, any sort of confessional, as you put it, uh, people can spot a phony or somebody who's not willing to give of themselves. And I wanted to establish right from the beginning that I'm going to give of myself in this book. You know, you may, it may be uncomfortable for, for you to read, or, you know, you may not like me as much at the end of the, as, as at the beginning, but I'm going to lay it all out there. And so I thought it was crucial to start with that concrete step to, to make all the other ones follow from. Right. And to, and to the point of all that other stuff that you mentioned in your words, what was all that other stuff that might have been too personal or too complicated or maybe even too revealing, too embarrassing to include in this memoir? Were there things that were uh, in those categories that you decided not to include? Sure. I mean, this book is a um, not a tell all of, I guess it's a tell most, you know? Um, <laughs> yes. And there are, there are details about my life and my relationships um, and that sort of thing that I chose not to tell. But um, I felt like everything that was necessary to understand my struggle and the way I fit into the world and the way I see the world um, I feel like I got all that in there. There were some places where I might have chosen one of two or three stories mm -hmm. to illustrate a point. And the two that I left out, I just didn't tell. And maybe a couple of those would have embarrassed me worse than the one I did tell. But I felt like all the essentials, I guess, to, to cut to the chase, all the essentials are there. What was, what was one of the more difficult uh, things that you confessed in the book? For me, it was, there were external things and internal things. I guess an external thing is just sort of what my body looks like under my clothes. You know, you can hide a lot with, you know, well-cut clothes and lots of layers and that sort of thing. But I wanted people to see me naked, I guess, um, which I kind of describe in the book, um, to to get a sense of not only what it must feel like to be me, but what it, I see when I look in the mirror, because what I see may be different than what other people see. So that, the, just the descriptive part of, here's what I look like when I get up in the morning and I see myself naked in the mirror. Um, that was certainly difficult for me to share because not that many people have seen me like that. Um, but then there were other parts that were internal about thoughts, you know, the way I, th I think about things and the way I've sort of had real sort of self, <clears throat> self-hatred in some ways, um, self-esteem problems when it comes to my weight and when it comes to trying to get over it. 
some things that I was really embarrassed and ashamed to confess about the way I thought about things and the way that I soothed those fears and those shameful moments with more food. Um, it, there are probably moments in this book that are going to be infuriating to people where I'm, you know, react to something bad that happened um, because of my weight by going out and eating more fast food and adding to my weight. Well, yeah, it's infuriating. It's that's sort of what addiction, compulsion, whatever you want to call it, that's what it's like. You do bad things for you. You do bad things to yourself, even when you know they're bad. And so those things are um, the internal sort of calculations that I made and the compromises that I made and the rationalizations that I made to keep harming myself in that way. Those are, you know, as, a, as a, somebody who I like to think is a pretty normal and rational human being in the rest of my life, those things are hard to admit. Tommy, what was more difficult, actually undergoing the physical process of changing your body? Because you, you, you tell that story so beautifully in your book, or, or was it more difficult to write these embarrassing things uh, that, that others would read for the first time, this sort of confessional part of the internal and external things that you just described? Which was harder? Um, the, the writing part, to be honest, was not as difficult once I decided I was going to do it. So to back up just a little bit, yeah. um, <clears throat> I first started talking about this book with my agent in 2011. We had a breakfast together. He had asked me, um, Sloan Harris, my agent, he had asked me um, what I was thinking about these days. And I told him I'd thought about where we were having breakfast that morning because I wanted to make sure I'd sat at a place that was comfortable for me. I Googled the interior of it the night before to make sure there were tables so I wasn't jammed into a booth and that sort of thing. And it sort of went into this little soliloquy about how hard it is to be a fat guy out in the world. And he looked at me and said, well, dude, that's your book right there. You should write that. And I agreed. And I said, that's a really great idea. And then I did nothing about it for three years because I was afraid to. I was afraid of all those moments that I'm telling you about now and that I put in the book that would be embarrassing or shameful or hurtful, not just to me, but to the people who love me and who I love. Um, and so it took me a long time to sort of muster up the guts to write it. And what helped me, um, in fact, the key thing that helped me was writing a story about somebody like me. So I wrote a story for ESPN in 2014 about this guy named Jared Lorenzen, who was a star quarterback at University of Kentucky, played in the NFL as a backup to Eli Manning for a couple of years was known as the hefty lefty. He was a 300-pound quarterback who, by the time I caught up with him in 2014, was playing minor league football for 200 bucks a game as a 400-pound quarterback, far bigger than anybody else on the field and also far better. And I saw it when there was one night on SportsCenter where, you know, at the end of SportsCenter, often they'll play, like, humorous clips from the sports day. And they played this clip of Jared. And... I, and they were sort of gently mocking him a little bit. And I watched it, and I immediately thought, I could do a story on that guy in a way that nobody else could. And so I looked him up, and I asked him, and I said, 
you know, when I finally reached him, I said, Jared, I'm overweight just like you. I'm probably bigger than you. Um, I want to tell your story um, like fat guy to fat guy, basically. And he agreed to do it, and we, you know, got together and ended up writing the story. And as I was finishing up the story, working on the editing with um, Jay Lovinger, the great Jay Lovinger, you know. Yes. Um, I, I had this, like, flash of insight that I now knew how to write my story because the way I talked to Jared about it and the way I'd written about Jared made me feel like I could do it with by telling the whole truth and being raw about it, but also with a sensitivity and a, you know, empathy and those sorts of things that, you know, gave, gave myself a break as I, as I wrote about myself and, and did not make it just a litany of terrors, basically. Well, that, and the so, piece that you're referring Tommy, let me just interrupt you one second because yeah, I sure. want our listeners, I want to pause because this is an important uh, moment in your decision to write the book. As you explain, the piece that you're referring to is entitled You Can't Quit Cold Turkey. It was published in ESPN, the magazine on August 21st, 2014, and we'll have a link uh, with the podcast and in the newsletter to the piece. It's an extraordinary story, which I reread last night. The lead is a confessional. It's as much about your uh, weight issues as it is about Jared. And I just want to read the first paragraph because it's one of the great leads in magazine writing. Jared Lorenzen and I are in love with the same woman. Her name is Little Debbie and she makes delicious snack cakes. We're not the only ones who love her. Nick Saban has two oatmeal cream pies every morning for breakfast. I'm more of a nutty bars man myself. They're all right, Lorenzen says, but I'll kill a fudge round. We bond over clothes from Casual Mail XL. It's the only place we can walk into and find stuff that fits. I wear a six-time shirt. Lorenzen is a 4XT, T for tall, because he's six foot four. He says he's usually a 3X. That's a classic big guy line. This size is just temporary. My pants are a 54, but that's because my thighs are so damn big, he says. I have to cinch my belt way down or my pants fall off. You talk about how much you guys have in common. And when I reread that story in the context, obviously, of your book, without knowing this until you just said it, Tommy, I thought, well, this was clearly the launching pad and the jumping off point and the sort of odyssey you needed to make to get in a place where you could write the elephant uh, in the room. That's that's exactly it. As I talk with Jared and as he, you know, he was so open with me in that story and, and willing to talk about everything, you know, all the shame and guilt, you know, he and his wife, um, who he dearly loved, got divorced because of his weight. Basically, they couldn't, they couldn't stop arguing about it. Um, those, those things I, I saw in myself, I saw all the, all the moments he talked about and all the sort of guilt and troubles he has and how he went to food to comfort himself, even in those bad spots, resonated with me so deeply. And so I, I, I remember being, I think I'd gone up to Lexington to see him. I remember, you know, being in the hotel one night and starting to think, wow, I could, I could tell my story the same way. And I could tell it with an open heart and feel like I could do it in a way that's not hurtful to me or to the people around me. And so toward the end of that story, as we were in the editing process, I called up Sloan, my agent, and I said, I think I know a way to write that book 
that we've been talking about. And so I wrote up a proposal and he sold the book in two weeks. You know, after three years of nothing happening, you know, it all happened right there in a rush at the end. And so that, you know, that story on Jared was the, certainly the genesis for this book. I can't thank Jared enough. That's amazing. And, and Tommy, the, the piece you did also went viral, and had, I remember vividly the reaction to it. How much was the positive reaction and how deeply it touched so many readers? How much of that was sort of your jet fuel in deciding you could actually write this book uh, about yourself, this memoir? Well, it was helpful. And, and similarly to what I said earlier about all the, the letters that I got after this excerpt that I ran this week, I got similar kind of letters from the story on Jared. There are all these people who are out there. Um, it's such a hoary cliche, something we would never actually write in a story. Those words, you are not alone. Um, that's something we would never write. But the underneath of the higher meaning of a story is often the cliche. And that story, I think, told a lot of people that they were not alone in their struggle with weight. <clears throat> and that even Jared Lorenzen, who was a successful SEC quarterback, made it to the NFL by most standards that are really successful athletic life, um, still struggle with the same thing, the same way that any, you know, factory worker on the street might. And so I think that opened some people's eyes and hearts to the idea that they weren't in this by themselves. And that a lot of the things that Jared thought about and dealt with and the things that I thought about and dealt with were the same things they were dealing, thinking about and dealing with. I'm just curious, was, was your agent, Tommy, a high pressure salesman about writing the book over those three years or was he a no pressure salesman? He was a very low pressure salesman. Sloan okay. is an intensely patient man. Um, Cause I pitched some really crappy book proposals um, <laughs> that he, he lovingly rejected and a couple more that he liked and ultimately didn't get published. But, um, but I think all this time he was probably waiting for this, for me to be ready to do this. And, and to be honest, I knew from the moment I said it in that diner, that that's the book I write. I was just afraid to do it. And, and it's, it's pretty incredible that it was that piece that, that, really helped you get there to, you know, to make, to make that move, to do it. It's just uh, sometimes you have to, you have to do the small thing to get to the big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is declaring victory ever an option, uh, in battling food addiction? Probably not. I mean, I think it's very similar to other addictions in that, um, you, even if you feel like you're in a good place and in good shape, you're always one or two bad decisions from backsliding. Um, the one difference, and this is not, doesn't make it worse, it's just different. The one difference in being addicted to food like I've been is that you, I mean, that's one of the reasons we called the Lorenzen story this is you really can't quit cold turkey. You know, you can't just stop eating. And so in, at some level every day, you're confronted with the thing that gives you the problem. And so I certainly, I mean, I feel like I'm in a much better place now than I was at the start of the book, but I certainly don't consider it a victory. And I don't think even if I get down to the point where I'm 
you know, for lack of a better word, normal sized, I, you know, I'll consider that a, a, a triumph, like a big achievement, but it's not a victory. You know, the clock doesn't run out till the very end. And so um, it's something that I'm sure I will always have to be vigilant about. Well, by the time we get to your book's epilogue, you've lost almost 100 pounds. Um, how much of the writing of the book was motive to you in shedding that weight? I think there was some of it. Um, my agent and my editor, Jofi Ferrari Adler, Simon and Schuster, the three of us talked some beforehand about what would happen if I got to the end of the book and I hadn't lost any weight or, God forbid, even gained some. And, you know, we all kind of left it open-ended there. But I think what we all thought in some way is the book is not about the number. Certainly, I, I carry you through the book in these little sub-chapters. I, I take you month to month through a year of my life and show you the specific struggles, you know, the triumphs and, and, and fallbacks in those particular months. And at the end of the year, there's a different number. Um, but what we wanted the book to really be about was the struggle and the sort of the internal things and external things that, that overweight people deal with all the time. And that is true um, and accurate regardless of how much weight I gained or lost during the process. I mean, we, we didn't, we set out specifically not to make this a weight loss book. Mm -hmm. um, in the end, there's some weight loss in it, but it's a book about what it's like to be overweight uh, in this country, what it's like to struggle with it, and to take you sort of inside that, that process. And, and you never felt any pressure uh, you know, that conversation you had with your agent and your editor during the process. You say it's not about a number, but I'm curious if you ever felt or you ever put any pressure on yourself um, that you felt as if you had to at least have lost some weight by the end. Well, um, absolutely. I mean, I didn't yeah. want to, I, I didn't want it to, because I think if I, if I got to the end of the book and I gained weight, it would be a pretty downer book, you know, <laughs> right, it, it just right. would. And I, you know, that's one of those questions I probably don't want to know the answer to, which is would they still have published it anyway? Um, but, you know, I never successfully lost weight in a sustained way before. And I guess the other thing that, you know, I need to talk about here that, you know, you'll find out, people will find out as they read the book, the other sort of big event that happened around the same time, and to me was more important, was the death of my sister. Right. Who was um, a good bit older than me, but also struggled with her weight her whole life, and died from a complication of a, a leg infection that was clearly caused by her being overweight. And that, to be honest, on was much more on my mind at the moment I started than how am I going to look? What's the number going to look like when I finish writing this book? Um, that was such a overwhelming emotional thing for me where I thought, you know, she, I saw my future and, and I knew that it wasn't good and I, I didn't have much of a future if I didn't do something right away. And that I think brought me up short um, even more than the idea that I was writing a book about it. Not to diminish that I was writing a book about it. I wanted it, wanted that book to have some sort of satisfying ending. 
but um, I didn't want it to be just about that either. Your sister Brenda, tell our listeners a little bit about her. And she died, uh, as you say, basically because she was overweight and because of complications uh, from an infection. Uh, but but just describe her and and, and again how important she was uh, in in this process and and in your decision to write the book. She was my older sister, technically a half sister. She was from my mom's first marriage, but I always called her my sister and still think of her that way. Um, she had this incredible laugh that just tickled the rest of us whenever we were all together. A very compassionate woman, a great parent to her three kids. Uh, she and her husband, Ed, uh, were married, I think, 43 years, if I remember right. Um, and But toward the last years of her life, because of her weight, it really limited what she could do. Um, she, her problems were mostly in her legs with swelling and cramps. She had cramps in her legs that were so bad that she she was afraid to drive because she was afraid they would basically seize up while she was, you know, on the highway somewhere. And so it, it narrowed her options in her life and it limited her a lot. Um, and toward the end, you know, she started getting these infections and sores and things on her legs and one of them got infected bad enough that she had to go to the hospital and Brenda was really tough. And so by the time she got to the hospital, it was basically too late. And this happened on Christmas Eve. Um, my wife and I were up visiting my wife's parents and my brother called and said, told us what had happened. And by the time we could get in the car and get halfway down there, she had already died. And so um, her weight shortened her life. There's no doubt about it. And my weight would, would and will most certainly shorten my life if I don't and didn't do something about it. And that, you know, I known that intellectually always, certainly had felt it emotionally more than once, but that was the galvanizing moment for me. You write in the book, quote, guys like me don't see 60. Uh, you're 55 now, so 60 is five years away. In fact, you just had a birthday last Friday, so belated happy birthday, Tommy. Thank you. How, do, how does it feel when you think about that? Are you scared? Are you at peace? Um, determined to get five or 10 or 30 more years? How much of that is the driving force in your life now, the, the mortality and trying to hit that number? It's a different number from your weight, obviously. It's your age and try to get there. I, I read um, this great book, Olive Kittredge, which came out a few years ago. I read it over Christmas. <clears throat> and at the very end of the book, the, the title character says something along the lines of, um, life is baffling to me. I don't want to leave it. And that's kind of how I feel. You know, I, all, the, all the dumb decisions I make, all the things that I've, I've done to shorten my life over the years, they baffle me too. Um, and I know that they, in the end, may cause me to check out way earlier than I should. But I don't want to leave it. There's too much I still care about, too many people I still love and want to spend time with, too much stuff I want to still do. And, yeah, it does scare me. I mean, every time, you know, every time I, I drink uh, like a Coke Zero or something and that little, you know, carbon dioxide fills up in there and I have to belch or something, I have this quick flash like, is this a heart attack? You know, if I have any weird pain, I'm like, is this the time? 
And I, and I know that happens to most everybody as they get older. Everybody sort of looks around the corner wondering what that shadow is, right? Yeah. Um, but for sure. me, I know that the decisions I've made, the choices I've made, have have caused this reckoning to more than likely come sooner than it should. And so um, I feel better about that than I did a few years ago, certainly, because I've gotten a good bit healthier. But it's, it's something I think about all the time. Tommy, you talk about admiring people with emotional intelligence. What is emotional intelligence to you, and who is a good example of someone who has it? I think emotional intelligence is basically being able to sense what other people are feeling and try to tell them it's okay to feel that or to get them to talk about it in some way to open up. Um, I think I learned that more than anybody from my mom. You know, my mom and dad, I say in the book, um, didn't have much of an education. They grew up picking cotton in South Georgia. My mom quit school on the first day of the fourth grade because she had to go work in the fields and provide for her family. But um, she had great emotional intelligence. You know, if I was feeling bad or if anybody in her family was feeling bad or needed to talk or something, she could sense it and she could draw us out in a way that um, was great, was a great role model for, re for me excuse me, as a journalist, she was a great role model for me as a journalist to learn how to do that. She was a waitress for a long time, the last, the sort of last 18 years of her working life. And that sometimes I would go to Denny's where she worked and just watch her for a while. And she was so good with customers, whether it was somebody who was giving her a hard time or somebody who wasn't going to tip very much or just somebody that she could kind of get into an easy banner with. You know, she was she was a great waitress and the kind of person that you wish would come to your table. And so that that sort of easygoingness, um, I guess, in a social situation, that feeling that you can talk to anybody and that feeling that you that people have when when you talk to somebody and you feel like they understand you mm -hmm. and they're listening and they're paying attention. Um, that's something I treasure and value greatly, not only in myself, but in the people who I'm friends with and care about. That's, I think, probably if I had to think about it, the number one quality that I look for in people that I want to spend time with. <clears throat> and so for me, um, that's hugely valuable. And I think I probably got that from my mom more than anybody else. It's also an incredibly important skill for a writer to have. And it's something, Tommy, I probably maybe the first time we met or the second time I spent time with you, I sensed it in you right away. You were very easy to talk to. What you were describing is it's actually two talents, right? One is to sort of intuitively know how somebody is feeling or, or maybe expressing things that they're not necessarily saying with words and being able to smartly and authentically, very key here is the authentic response to that um, you know good word for it is empathy empathizing with someone uh, and for a writer I mean in many fields it's important obviously medicine you can come the law all there's many many fields where this is important but it's just particularly important for 
a writer to have that, and you certainly have it. It, it. Again, it came across to me when we first met, the first few times I spent with you, as well as just in reading your writing. Uh, that emotional. That's why I wanted to ask you about that emotional intelligence because it comes across in in your work. Well, I, I've certainly worked hard as a journalist, and I believe that anybody can do pretty much any kind of craft job or something that even approaches art, something creative, by working really hard at it. Um, the one gift that I think I got from my family, besides some skills at storytelling, was that gift of empathy and that gift of being in another person's shoes and, and trying to feel what their life is like and, and trying to have a conversation with them about it. That's something that I was blessed with from the beginning because that's the way that I watched my mom work in the world. You mentioned Jason Isbell's Live Oak in your book and how it yes. spoke to you in a way uh, that perhaps the, the great uh, songwriter and singer might never have intended. What did music teach you about writing? And uh, what's one song you use to talk about writing when you speak to aspiring writers, maybe? I used to teach the song, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, oh, yeah. Which, yes. And the reason I taught it was <clears throat> not just because it was musical and told a really great story, but because it's nonfiction. I think uh, that whole song, which is like six minutes long, he makes up maybe like one little moment. And the rest of it is basically drawn from news accounts of this big freighter that sank in the Great Lakes. Um, uh, and that song also has a really, um, the music of that song matches the lyrics, this sort of oncoming dread and this notion of being in a big storm and all that sort of thing. You know, I, I hate to say this because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to disappoint a lot of really big, like Bob Dylan fans, and <laughs> Springsteen fans, and people like that. I don't listen to music that much for the lyrics. Um, for me, it's all about the emotional impact of the music. I was, a, am, was and am still a huge fan of R.E.M. And in fact, I was, went to the University of Georgia and was at, on campus right at the time they got to sort of made it big. Any of those first like three R.E.M. albums, nobody has any idea what the hell Michael Stipe is singing about. <laughs> but the, the emotional impact of his voice and of the music there just really reached out to me and made me feel like he understood me even though I didn't know what the words were. And so that the music has been, for me, something that's super powerful. And, um, you know, I listen to a lot of old 70s soul, like Al Green and things like that, and that sort of emotional impact of that stuff in their voices is even more important than what they're singing, even though what they are singing is often brilliantly written. What do you listen to when you're writing? I, I don't listen to anything when I'm writing. Oh, you don't? I, yeah, I am so, I, I'm much, I'm really deep into music. And so if I'm listening to music, that's what I'm doing. So if I start to write and I put on music, my finger starts tapping out the beat and I start humming the lyrics. And then I think, well, that song is on that record. And there, there's another great song on that record that I, and I remember, oh, I saw them in concert one time. And pretty soon I've forgotten what I'm writing. Now, I, there's a wide range of approaches to this. I know a lot of people listen to music, and that's the only way they can write. 
for me, I have to have, um, and, and it can't be totally silent for me either. Cause then I, I hear every like creak in the house or the coffee shop or wherever I am. I need a little bit of a white noise. Uh, in fact, there, there's one of the things I discovered doing this book was that on YouTube, there are clips you can call up that are literally 10 or 12 hours long of box fans. And it's just the noise of the box fan. So you click on it and it goes like, for like 12 hours straight. That to me is perfect writing. You know, that white noise where I'm not, there's a noise so I'm not too deep in my own head, but it's not music either that I can catch the rhythm of or it makes me think of something else. So it's sort of a, that's, that's sort of the compromise that I've come up with. It's so interesting. If you could run like Herschel Walker or play guitar like Prince, which would you choose? Damn it, Don. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I hate to say this because Prince's life was obviously also shorter than it should have been, but I, I would play guitar like Prince. Um, you know, it would be fantastic to run like Herschel Walker who's my all-time favorite athlete, and I know the reason, that's the reason you mentioned it. <laughs> but um, that career, <clears throat> that life is so short. Um, that that moment of glory, you know, it's five or ten years and it's done, you know, at the most. Um, whereas Prince had about 30 good years, you know, and, and God, I wish he'd had more. But that, and 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 you can be... 75 years old and you can still jam on the guitar. Uh, you can't be 75 years old and still run a 4240. Right. And so <laughs> I guess I would opt for the, the long-term skill. I love that answer. Tommy, your wife, Alix, is the most important figure in your life besides your parents. What's the best thing about her that something about her you're forever grateful for? Well, Don, that's a long list. Um, <laughs> and we don't have that much time. But... I will tell you in this context, from what we've been talking about, the great gift that she gave me was grace. Um, she was able, has been able to navigate this life that um, I put so many obstacles in for both of us with uh, an incredible grace and skill and urging me to do better, nudging me to do better encouraging me without it ever crossing into nagging or hectoring or any of those things. She has, she has done everything in her power and her wonderful power to make me a better person despite all the times that I have resisted that. Um, and I, I don't know anybody who could have handled it as well as she has. That doesn't mean we've been trouble-free. You know, this has caused tension and friction and conflict in our in our marriage in our lives um, because I have been unable um, or one is unable for so many years to turn things around but um, she's been just wonderful the whole way and I I really I mean this is I know another kind of cliche to say but it's absolutely 100% true in this case I never be here maybe literally but certainly never be in, in the good place I am now without her. Tommy, when you launched on this project, you asked me for advice. 
about writing a book, the mechanics of it, the time management. I can't remember what I told you, whatever it was. I hope you did the complete I don't even opposite. Remember. I can't remember either. I think I just internalized it. <laughs> well, I hope you did the opposite of whatever I told you. But, but now it's my turn to ask you for some guidance. What advice would you give me or anybody who wanted to write a deeply personal memoir? I think first you have to be willing to commit to basically going all the way with it. Um, As as I described, it took me a long time to work up the courage to write what I wrote. And if you're going to sit down and start writing this stuff, just know that people will know if you're holding back. Certainly the people closest to you will know that. And probably the people who don't know you, but will just sense it from the words, will know that you're holding back. And they will, I think, not be as inclined to be interested in what you're writing or not inclined to follow to the end because, you know, they read a million stories where somebody sort of hedged or half-assed it or whatever. And so the first thing, I think, is the commitment. The second part of it is, to be able to take care of yourself in some way while you're doing it. For much of this book, I was a freelancer. So I had I could pick the times when I wanted to write. Not everybody has that luxury. Alex and I had forgotten about all this. We're talking recently about the routine I, the routine I had while I was writing the book. And she said what I, what I would do is I would get up, you know, maybe go for a walk or something, have breakfast. I would go write for like three or four hours, come out, have lunch, and then I would like fall into bed in the middle of the afternoon. I would just be emotionally exhausted from the stuff I had written. And that, you know, that kind of counts as work time too. You know, <laughs> for as, sure. As, oh, yeah. as recover, recover, recovery, recovery time, time yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, would get, I, I guess I would say, to, to ball that up into advice is to give yourself recovery time. You know, because what you're dealing with is gonna, it's gonna really sting, and it's gonna be a emotional. It's gonna bring this stuff up in waves to you, and it will hit you in ways that you don't expect, or at times you don't expect. So there were a few times in this book where I was just driving somewhere, um, had nothing to do with the book. I'm going to the Costco or something, and I, but I'd be thinking about it, and something would be in the back of my mind, and that would call up this sort of emotional memory or some feeling that I had and I would have to stop the car. I'd have to pull over and like get a hold of myself um, sometimes. And so being in the middle of that, calling all that stuff up, you can't control what's going to come up once you start stirring around down in there. And so you have to be prepared to really confront some things that maybe you had tried to forget. So those things are, are important. Um, I think the, otherwise it's it's the sort of technical kind of stuff. Try to write something every day you can. Try to just get some words on the page. Um, be open and uh, open-hearted as you write, knowing that you're going to be a hard-ass when you revise. Let that first draft be open and free and put down everything. You can always take it out later. Nobody's ever going to see that first draft but you. Um, And so those are the things, you know, the sort of the big boxes 
that I think about checking for somebody who's going to delve into this kind of work. That's interesting. The, the I want to add, I, and I yeah, want to oh, add one no, thing that I just course. thought of. So one of the role models for me in this book was a book that David Carr did called The Night of the Gun. Oh, yeah. Excellent David book. Carr was the longtime media critic for the New York Times. He died a couple of years ago. In his in his early career, um, at working for alt-weeklies, I think, in Minnesota, he was a drug addict. And he wrote about that period in his life. And one thing that I saw in his book that I don't think I'd seen before was that he basically went back and interviewed the people that he hung out with back in those days. Um, for him, he had moments of blackouts and things like that, and he literally didn't know what had happened in some key moments. And so <clears throat> he was having to sort of piece things together. When I did my book, one of the things that I did was I did two long interviews with my wife and my mom because they were the two most important people in the book. But then I also sent out kind of questionnaires um, to 25 or 30 of my friends, people I'm close to, and just ask them, you know, when I'm not around, do you guys talk about my weight? Do you worry about me? What do you, what kind of things do you say? What do you think when you think about me? That sort of thing. And I got some really good and, and, and revealing answers there that really informed what I wrote. And so that's another, I guess, piece of advice I would give is to go back and report your own life because your memories might not be as clear as you think they are. And other people have perspectives that you'll never know about unless you ask. That's great advice. And and that open heartedness that you described, you know, you were relying on that from your friends as well. They, they had to approach this and be uh, mm. open hearted in, in and honest uh, about uh, what was said when you weren't around. I mean, that was, I think, almost equally important to you in, in, in your process and being open hearted as you sat at the, at the keyboard. Yeah, and some of them, some of them didn't told, feel like they told your story. Some of them didn't feel like they could do it, and they declined, which was absolutely fine. Um, other people were really open and and moving in the things that they said. And as I thought about it later, um, I thought that you know that going back to that part of the beginning, revealing how much I weighed and that kind of secret that I've held for so long. Um, I have always felt like I couldn't have really deep emotional conversations with my friends. And I, I didn't realize that until just recently, but I, I, now I know that I've always held back on that because I was never willing to reveal my secrets. You know, I was never willing to tell anybody how much I weighed. And so I felt like I didn't have the license to ask other people about their secrets or their kind of deep inner lives. And so I felt like in some ways I've had Although I have had many really good and deep friendships, I feel like maybe they've all been or most have been a little shallower than they could have been because I wasn't as forthcoming in my life. And so I didn't feel like I could ask them to be that way in theirs. And you guys were ignoring the elephant in the room. That's why it's a title, Don. It's a great title. I love the title. By the way, David Carr has one of the greatest quotes I've ever seen about journalism, life as a journalist, the privilege that we both have as, as being writers, professional writers. The quote is, I now inhabit a life I don't deserve, but we all walk this earth feeling we are frauds. The trick is to be grateful and hope the caper doesn't end soon. <laughs> Isn't that great? Well, that could be, yeah, absolutely. That could be my 
my motivating uh, words as well. That's what I was thinking of when you mentioned Carr and how much you love his great book, The Night of the Gun. I, I immediately thought of that quote, and I thought in, in, in many ways that quote can apply to your book and to your story. Yeah, I do feel like um, in many ways I've pulled off this great caper by getting to this job that I love for so long. You know, it's, it's like a, I still do have that kind of giddy feeling most days of I get to really do this for a living. I don't have to, you know, do what my mom and dad did, which was pick cotton or work in a factory or something. The things that they did to enable me to do what I do. Um, and, and I feel like I've had this other kind of part of my life, this part about eating and gaining weight and not staying in shape that is, has limited the span of that caper. And yeah, I, I don't want it to end either. And so that's, that's resolving those two things is, as I think a big part of what um, my life in this book is about. Well, Tommy, I can't thank you enough for your time uh, today. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Much success with the book. I hope you sell a million copies. And uh, you know, much success with your, with your writing as well, your, your continued success and your podcast. Uh, all the best to you and, and, and with your health and everything else. We just wish you all the best. Well, thank you, my brother. I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Tommy Tomlinson a writer who spent 23 years as a reporter and local columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where he was a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize in Commentary. His outstanding long-form writing has been published in Esquire, Sports Illustrated, ESPN the Magazine, and many other places. He's also the author of the brand new book, The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. I highly recommend the book. It is a fantastic read on sale everywhere. You've been listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please give us a kind review on the Apple's podcast page and subscribe so you don't miss another episode. This podcast is a byproduct of the Sunday Long Read newsletter. Every Sunday morning, the Sunday Long Read drops in your inbox, delivering the best journalism of the previous week. We're curated now by a dedicated team of 100 editors, staffers, and contributing editors, which is sort of mind-boggling when you think that Jacob Feldman and I started this thing, just the two of us, five years ago. If you haven't yet subscribed to the newsletter, please do so at sundaylongread.com. We've also begun a membership program, which brings you extra goodies like early Sunday morning delivery of the newsletter and special members-only editions of the SLR. Details are at sundaylongread.com backslash membership. Our producer today is the always terrific Peter Bailey Wells. I had special and invaluable help from a mutual friend of Tommy's and mine, Kevin Van Valkenburg. Thank you, KVV. And a special shout out to Jacob. I'm Don Van Natta. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the Sunday Long Read Podcast. See you soon. Bye.